We're going to be in Matthew 21. Um, We're going to read the account of Palm Sunday. And I have something really particular out of this passage that I just want us to draw our attention to today. I love you guys. It's so good to be down here and to, to worship with all of you. So I love what God is doing in the gospel tab in this season. It's really special. Um, so let me give you some context for the passage that we're going to read together. Um, Christians all over the world today celebrate Palm Sunday. They're doing what we're doing. They're waving palms in church and And it's from the story that we're going to read in Matthew 21. You can also read about it in the Gospel of Mark and Luke. Um, But we're going to read Matthew's account of it today. And we remember this day. Uh, But let me give you some context on why it is that they were waving these palm branches. So Jesus has made this announcement for a while now. By this point in his story, his, his years into his public ministry, And he has made this announcement that he is going to Jerusalem. And more than that, you need to understand that like Jesus' death did not sneak up on him or something. Mm -hmm. Um, He knew what was going to happen. He told his disciples, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And most of his ministry had not been in the city of Jerusalem, although he had been there. Most of his ministry really happened outside, honestly, in Jerusalem forgotten kinds of places in the region of Galilee, kind of like how parts of Western Pennsylvania are viewed that way. Most of Jesus's ministry happened in places like that. You know, that's why I'm never surprised that we find Jesus so easy in Western PA. Come on, right? Because he loves to show up, right? In places that people feel like are forgotten, right? So he did most of his ministry there. He never really got along very well with the power brokers in Jerusalem, religious or political. They had way less tolerance for him, right? He, was, he just came into conflict with them. So Jesus knows when he's going to Jerusalem, you know, which is the center of Jewish religious and political life, um, the most powerful city in that region. Jesus knows when he goes what's going to happen here. And he has told his disciples... But if you read the conversations where Jesus is telling his disciples, it's like no matter how many times he says it, they can't get it, right? It's like they they just can't wrap their mind around that this is actually going to be what happens. And you can tell it doesn't take Jesus by surprise what happens during Holy Week in Jerusalem. But it does kind of take the disciples by surprise. Like no matter how many times he tells them, like they just don't get it, you know? So Jesus is going to Jerusalem, certainly with the 12 disciples, but more disciples than that in tow. There's probably other people, other men and women who are following him into the city. And you can read the account of all the things that happen as he's going into the city. But where we pick up in Matthew 21, he is actually making his entrance into Jerusalem. And and we're going to read it in a minute, but as he goes into Jerusalem, the disciples and the crowd that's kind of forming him into the city starts to wave palm branches. Now, these palm branches were a religious and mostly political uh, uh, symbol for the Jewish people. So, you know, hundreds of years passed between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. And while no scripture was written in that period of time, we do have historical accounts of some of what happened in that time. Um, That time, uh, 
consisted of the people of Israel being subdued by other empires. First, it was the Greeks. So the Greek empire subdues the Jewish people in, in the Holy Land. And eventually, there was a revolt. It was called the Maccabean Revolt. And we have some historical record of it. But there were some Jewish leaders who led a revolt, threw off the chains of their oppressors of the, of the Greek empire, rededicated the temple back to Yahweh. And for a while, the Jewish people were free. But it was very short-lived um, because eventually they were taken captive again, ultimately by the Roman Empire. So you have to understand that although there's these short windows of freedom, now for hundreds of years, the Jewish people have really been subjugated by these massive empires, right? And now currently, it's the Roman Empire in the days of Jesus. But it's in the memory, it's in the political memory of the people of Israel that once upon a time there was a revolt and they experienced freedom for a minute and they rededicated the temple for a minute and in the time leading up to Jesus' ministry uh, we would say there was this deep, fervent, messianic expectation and this is what I mean by that they were longing for the Messiah a word that really just means anointed one the promised one the one who would come from God to bring them freedom. And if you read the Jewish writings leading up to the time of Jesus' ministry, people are so hungry for this leader to appear. They want this leader to appear and to bring them freedom again. And this is a widespread hope, a widespread desire. And in the historical context of when Jesus did his ministry, these leaders did rise up. There were these leaders that would rise up and a little revolt would break out here and a little revolt would break out over here and there would be these political figures who would rise up never as strong and pervasive as the Maccabeans had been but there would be these little attempts to try to regain their freedom and it was like every time it happened there was some excitement again like oh maybe this is it maybe this is the leader that we've been waiting for we're going to be free we're going to be free this is going to be how it happens this leader is going to deliver us this leader is going to free us there'd be hope for that again, and then disappointment, because as it turns out, that that leader was not the leader that was ultimately uh, sent. So, when Jesus enters Jerusalem, it's like this button gets pressed again, and there is this fresh desire, this fresh hope uh, for the freedom of the people of Israel. Um, and so this button gets press, pressed and people start to do what they did in the days of the Maccabean revolt. And that is to wave the symbol of their freedom, which is this palm branch. Now, you have to understand, this is a deeply significant and deeply prophetic moment. Prophetic because the Old Testament prophets had prophesied that this would happen Prophetic because it is a picture of what will happen in the future when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom. Um, it's a prophetic picture of what is true about Jesus, that he is a king. And all of that is true. And something else is also true, that the people who are there on that day, and too often we too, when we read the account, we just totally miss it. Just totally miss what kind of king Jesus was, what kind of king Jesus is. So even in church language, sometimes we call this event in Matthew 21 the triumphal entry. 
And no doubt, it is a triumphal entry of a triumphant king. And yet, what I want to point out to you today is that Jesus is a king like no other. In part, because he embraces weakness. And I just want to pull out that one theme in Matthew 21 today. How this weak king enters Jerusalem and what that means for our weakness. Today, I want to preach the good news of this king to your weakness. To where you feel weak. To where you feel like you don't have enough. Because if this is what our king is like, and if he gets the victory here in this place of weakness, then we'll get the victory too. In our places of weakness. Right? So let's read the passage together. It's going to be up on the screen. You can follow along in your Bibles too. Matthew 21. I'll step over here so you can see it. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Now, Matthew is especially interested in making these connections to the Old Testament prophets. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And so he does it a couple times here. And so he quotes out of Zechariah, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Now look at this description. Gentle. And riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. On this humble animal, this is how your king comes to you. Gentle meek and weak. This is how he's, this is what had been prophesied. It's amazing that like we can't see it because it's not it's not how we think kings should be. Right. You know? Have you, have you noticed like in the chaos of the time in which we live, people are drawn to leaders who look and sound strong. Yeah. Who look and sound confident. Who look like they always have the answer. It's as true in church environments mm-hmm. as it is in political environments. But Zechariah's prophecy was that the king would come gentle. Gentle doesn't win elections. You know that, right? Weak doesn't win elections. But Jesus isn't getting elected. He is a king. Amen. (laughs) But he's a gentle king. He comes gentle. And if we are too seduced by what looks like strength and leadership, we will miss the king who comes gentle. Verse 6. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. And this is kind of when the spontaneous kind of like, oh, the Messiah is here begins to rise up from the crowd. Or say, a very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. You can believe the Maccabean revolt, all this stuff is in the back of their mind. They're thinking, maybe this is it again. Maybe we're going to be finally free. From our oppressors, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of them and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, a word which just means save us. For us, it has become an expression of praise because he has saved us. But the word means save us. What the crowd is crying out is save us, save us. Like you must be the one, save us. Deeply prophetic because that is what Jesus is going to do. Wow. 
just not in the way that they would expect. Hosanna to the son of David. Son of David is a kingly term. David, right, had been uh, the strongest king in Israel. So to be the son of David, recognize that he's in line of the king, right? That he is in the line of the king. It's a kingly term. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So this is happening before he gets into the city. But now this this all goes into the city. Verse 10. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? Who are are you? (laughs) The whole city. The people, the religious leaders, the political leaders. This is just something I want to point out. On one hand, this is some kind of move. Right? To come into the city this way with people declaring you as king. Right? But here's what I want to point out. It's also a very vulnerable place for Jesus to be. It's not as if Jesus planned here a military coup and they executed it in the middle of the night so that they could take over the sea or whatever. He just comes in just with his little donkey. Right? And people are calling him king. This is actually a very, the whole city stirred up. It's a very confident move. I'm going to speak to that in a little bit, but don't miss its weakness. Jesus is very vulnerable here. The city is getting stirred up. And if you want proof of that, look how the next week goes and how it ends for Jesus. This is the beginning of Jesus' vulnerability for this week in this city. Right? He's full of confidence in who God has anointed him to be. But he is going in weak and vulnerable. He's not coming in with a big army. And people are calling him king. Verse 11. The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple courts. Now even, now even this part of the story. There, this is such a, this is a whole sermon in of itself. And we're not going to be able to get to it. But this is a crazy account of Jesus. What we're about to read. To see the Son of God emote in this way. To be as frustrated as he is in these verses. He goes to the temple. Verse 12, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. We know from some of the other gospel accounts that he fashioned a whip out of cords and goes into the temple and just in his anger begins to lash with that whip and drive out the people who are in the temple courts trying to make money off of the things of God. And this is not what I'm preaching on today. But friends, we are in, we, not every Christian tradition struggles with this, but I was just talking about this with Jake today. We, or last week, we are in a Christian tradition that loves to make money off of the things of God. And we always justify it. Oh, we're trying to help people. We're trying to, well, they did too. We're selling things so that people can have what they need for the sacrifice. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus goes in, won't have it, right? But here's what I want you to see. On one hand, it's like, oh, Jesus, you're confident to come into the temple courts that way, right? It is his kingly place. He is claiming to be God, to have that kind of authority. And yet, can you see how vulnerable he is? how weak he is. It's like he's putting himself in danger, right? Because, he, because the people who run the temple don't recognize that he is the Lord of the temple. 
And so he is putting himself in danger by doing this, right? Like he's putting himself out there like this. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Verse 13, it is written, he said to them, he quotes here, out of the Old Testament, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. This could be a whole sermon of itself, but basically what he's saying is this temple was meant to be a place where you could come meet with God, where your heart would be open to God, where you could meet with God and he could meet with you, and you've made it a den of robbers. The den is where the robbers go to hide. He's saying you've made it a place where you come and hide from God. Instead of the place where you come and open your heart up to him, where you encounter him, where he encounters you, you come and you hide. You've made this whole religious system with its money and its teaching and its power and all of this the place where you go to hide from God. We do this with church. We make church the place where we go hide from God instead of the place where we encounter him. Jesus can't have, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Verse 14, look at this. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple. What a strange next verse. I'm going to say some things about this today. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. And one minute, he's whipping people out of the temple. And the next minute, the blind and the lame are like, I want to go be with that guy. <laughs> By the way, they're probably, they're probably in proximity of the temple because they're begging for money. And however, I, I don't know exactly what Jesus' facial expression and body language was as he's doing all this, turning over these tables and stuff. But somehow the weakest people in the environment feel very safe with him. Somehow he still is approachable to them. And they perceive that. Not the people with power. They're like running for their lives. They think this guy's crazy. But these people want to get closer The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, notice the children also feel very comfortable. The children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David. People are running from Jesus' whip and the kids are just dancing around. (laughs) Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. Verse 16, Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him, the religious leaders? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read, and he quotes out the Psalms here, from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And here's two more themes of weakness, the blind and the lame and the kids, right? Jesus comes in weak. He puts himself in weakness, And then it's the weak people who get it. And so I just want to point out, like, this is a theme all the way through this. And and it's very easy in American Christianity where we are drawn to strength and triumph. And we even associate God's blessing with all of those things to ourselves miss what's happening here. That Jesus is embracing weakness. So here's my one sentence to preach the good news of a king who is weak to whatever you feel like is bad news in your weakness. It's just this one thing, that because God became weak in Christ, Jesus is king in your weakness, through your weakness, and for your weakness. Jesus is king in your weakness, through your weakness, and for your weakness. Why? 
Because God became weak in Jesus. Because he can, and it doesn't start in Matthew 21. It started when Jesus was born. In a poor family. Right? It's to start when Jesus took on human flesh. God became weak. God became vulnerable in Jesus. And Jesus is carrying out this kingly call in weakness. We can't even imagine it. Because it's not how empire works. But here's the good news. That because Jesus was not afraid of weakness and he went into that thing and worked in it and accomplished God's will in it and proved his kingship in it, it means that every place we feel weak, we can have good news, right? Every place that we feel vulnerable, we can have good news because Jesus is showing us that he is king. The crowd is right, son of David. He is king, he is king in these weak places. So first of all, in our weakness. Um, I love, Jesus has been trying to say it to his disciples all the way up to Matthew 21. I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He keeps saying, I'm going to the place of vulnerability. I'm going to the place of weakness. And they just can't see that that would even be possible for someone who claims to be a king. So they keep like debating it. But I get it, guys, because I debate it too. I never want to go to the place of weakness. Right? I was thinking about this the other day because... Um, uh, recently, someone who's an authority over me in ministry said to me, uh, he had been on the mission field for a long time in Southeast Asia, and he said, you know, we used to see it with our missionaries all the time. They would, you know, come from wherever, come from the United States. They, they would come to, you know, Southeast Asia, um, have a honeymoon period. You know, it would last, like, the food's new, everything, you know, like, they learn the language, they're getting to know people. And then he was like, they would be these really competent people and then for like a year and a half they would just feel like they were really terrible at their job, you know? And their proficiency would just drop because they're learning a new culture and they're trying to figure out how to... And he, he was like, typically these are pretty qualified people. Like, people who are good at lots of things and now for like a year and a half they feel like they like suck at everything, mm-hmm. you know? He's telling me this. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's how I felt the last year and a half. <laughs> it's like, that's exactly what I feel like because God's been like... I mean, and you know, because we've been talking about this, but God's been leading me into these new places of leadership. And let me tell you something about just leaders. One reason it's hard for leaders to choose weakness is because after they get even a little bit of success, it's very easy to begin to curate their environments toward that success. So you just pick the things that you're good at again and again and again. You just do those things again and again. And before you know it, people think you're good at everything. You're only good at like five things. But you only do those five things over and over and over and over again. And the more public the gift, like if you're good at preaching, you just do that over and over and over again. And people think you're like good at everything. You might not even be good at life, but you can preach, right? <laughs> you can preach. So people think, so people think like you're, you're good at everything. It's much more rare to have to like pick weakness, right? Like to go there. And we were talking about this like two weeks ago. We were talking about those two women who helped Paul plant the church in Philippi, how in conflict, we just often don't choose weakness. In ministry, we often don't choose weakness. Like, whatever the place of weakness is, whatever Jerusalem is for us, it's like, it's not the thing we pick. Like, as a matter of fact, we spend a lot of time praying and hoping that weakness doesn't visit us. <laughs> Jesus is doing something different. He's actually, like, picking it as the strategy for what God wants to do in the world. That's really crazy. That he would actually 
pick it. Um, I don't, I, I, I'm like, like that's, that doesn't feel comfortable to me. And here's why. It's because we're not convinced that good news is possible in our weakness. Like we think like weakness is just bad news. And if we think it's just bad news, we won't pick it, right? But Jesus picks it and then demonstrates good news in that place. He's actually demonstrating his kingship, right? By picking it. He's actually demonstrating that instead of just being like, I'm king, so I'm not weak. He's saying, I'm so much king that I can even, with my will, pick what is weak and still get the victory there. Wow. That's the kind of king he is, right? That even in weakness, right? He gets the victory through our weakness. If we start picking weakness, then it means that like Jesus can actually work through our weakness. We, we can be used there, actually in the weak place. Jesus demonstrates this. Um, you know, I know some of you are like really familiar with our story, how all this started, like the tab and the network and all of that. But every time I start talking about weakness, I just, I, th- I think more and more about our story over the last 18 years now. Um, because I'm coming to realize that this theme of weakness, if I were to pick like one theme, aside from like Jesus, <laughs> but if I were to pick like just one theme that probably has held all the different parts of this story together, it's embraced poverty as the way that God wants to work in the world. It's choosing weakness as the way. And you know what? It, we, it's not like we were smart enough to figure that out. You know what happened at the beginning of this? We didn't have anything. We just didn't. I mean, like nothing. Like there wasn't enough money to run programs. None of us were getting paid by anybody. Um, you know, we didn't know like what we were doing. Um, we didn't feel like we had enough power. And if you look now, whether it's the tab or the network, at many of the things that people love and celebrate about this family on mission, I can find its source in weakness. How did we become a people who embraced the gifts like we do? You know, it wasn't always true about us. I remember meeting in one of these row houses with John and Galfua who are at the other campus today. And we met together and we were like, we need the Holy Spirit. We were like, there's things in the Bible that we haven't experienced. And why did we feel that way? It's because there were addicts knocking at my door right over here in these row houses and people living with us and all of this crazy stuff happening. And we just knew we were missing something. We just knew it was our weakness that led us to say, you know what, we can't really afford to ask the question, well, is this what the church I grew up in did or is this what my <laughs> denominational background did? Jesus. There was just something that rose up in us that was like, God, if it's you, we need it. Yeah. Like, yeah. we were just so desperate. Um, we just needed him. And so we started, we weren't just like seeking an experience. It was like if praying in tongues somehow helps us pray better, then we need tongues. Right? Like, if hearing your voice prophetically is going to help us, then we need that. It was birthed out of that, right? Kind of desperation. Just like, we need you. I think about all the work, all the ways, even some of you in this room have advocated for the poor and worked for justice in some of the systems in, in our community. And, and guys, there's more, as a matter of fact, 
There are things happening in the greenhouse network and the, and the tab. I, I don't want to take too long on this part of the sermon. But there are things happening that really we, we can't even like talk about that much like in the pulpit because the best way to protect what God is doing is to give it some modesty. Mm-hmm. But friends, there are people from our movement who are in the ears of people who are leading in economic development in our county who are leading the educational system in our county. It's crazy. People are drawn to the wisdom of God. And God has placed people. Here's the crazy thing. Almost none of them actually hold positions. Um, Almost none of them got elected to anything. In American Christianity, we think that like to have influence, you've got to win an election. What, What election did Jesus win? Right? He was nothing to the people who held those positions, and he upended that. He was such a threat to them, yeah. right? They, they felt like they had to kill him. He wasn't even trying to take their position like that. You know what I mean? Like, um, and, and I see like how it's just been choosing weakness, choosing weakness, choosing weakness. Um, I don't want to say too much, but right now, like my wife, who's at the other service, she's having so much influence in public school systems around here. But let me tell you how that started. And not because she holds a position, because administrators are calling her into offices and she's getting to speak into the culture of school districts. Mm. Well, here's, here's the crazy thing. You know how that started? I really think many of our public schools, when they see Christians coming, they're asking if we're, if we're going to come in with a triumphal entry in the way that, that we want to define. We're going to come in and own this. You know what I mean? Like we're going to come in and control this and make sure our people are on, or we're going to come in and protest this. You know what we started to do like 15 years ago? We just started to take breakfast to the school administration. My kids are in the school. I'm very, I'm very familiar with the issues in the school district. But we just started to say, what if we just took the place of weakness? What if we just started to take breakfast? Say thank you like for what you're doing. We're not here to protest anything or control anything. We're just here to serve, right? Now that takes years. It, doesn't, it would be so much easier just to try to take over things. Right? But the more we choose weakness. So I look at the way we're involved in justice. And it's like, okay, this weakness theme is there. Uh, people are amazed that we get along with Episcopalians and Roman Catholics. And that there's this interdenominational thing that's happening in Aliquippa. You know where that comes from? It comes from not being able to be picky about who will work with you. Because you don't have anybody. <laughs> right? <laughs> It's like, yeah. yeah, I didn't check your doctor. This is maybe the wrong thing to say. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, I didn't like make sure every little thing in your doctrinal statement agreed with what I believe because will you help me? Will you load up some furniture? Will you give me, like, we'll just work together, right? Because it comes out of that place of weakness. I, I look at the way that we've had to be so diligent in trying to figure out how to honor each other. The way our family on mission holds together such a different group of people with different personalities and different experiences and a lot of strong leaders that normally would not be able to coexist in such a small space. How has that happened? We had to be diligent in honoring each other because we could not afford for conflict to divide us. We learned that in those early years because it was like, we can't afford to be careless with relationships. There's only like five of us, right? So it's like, so it's like we can't afford to be careless. Like we're going to have to work through these issues. We're going to have to forgive each other, right? We're going to have to make room for each other's weaknesses. I look at the ways that ministry teams work together. Just these really unusual ministry teams form in our, in our ecosystem. Why? 
Because again, we've never been able to afford to be too picky. This has not been built by all stars. It's been built by super ordinary people who didn't know what they were doing. And so we just had to choose each other. We just had to pick each other, right? Our desperation for prayer came out of like, we needed God to do something. I remember standing on my front porch down here. I'm going to live down here again in just a couple weeks. Chelsea and I are moving down. But I remember, so I've been thinking a lot about what it was like to live down here 18 years ago. But I remember Chelsea, me standing with a friend of mine from college, one of the first friends from college who moved up here with us. And I just remember looking at him and being like, we've got to pray more. Like, we just have to pray more. Like, we're so in over our heads. It was weakness, right, that took us there. I really think, do you know, worship has changed so much at the gospel tab, so much from even a few years ago. Why? I can tell you, it wasn't because we started, like, trying to manipulate things and be like, oh, we need to worship more like this or more like this. This stuff just kind of emerged from us. Do you guys remember the first Sunday we really like danced our faces off in church? On a Sunday morning, we had done it other places, but Sunday morning we danced our face off. It was right before the pandemic. Not that long ago. Hard to believe, guys. Um, You know, because now it's such like a normal thing. But like, it wasn't that long before the pandemic. And let me tell you what had happened that week. There was an attempted murder that one of our ministry leaders had been really close to. A bunch of our ministry leaders had been involved with a young woman who was figuring out if she wanted to terminate her pregnancy or not. And so a bunch of our leaders were involved in this really heavy situation, walking with that young mom. Uh, a, a person who used to come to this campus overdose. All of that happened in like one week. And we walked into church And we just danced until we couldn't dance anymore because sometimes, guys, that's all you can do. You're just so desperate for God that the temperature of your worship will rise. I remember, I've shared this story before. I'm so off script. I shared this story before. But when I, one time, a friend, I went to college in Georgia and a friend of mine took me to his little Southern Baptist church in rural Georgia. And there wasn't, they were not like a dancing church. But there was this woman in the back, in the whole, the whole worship gathering. She was like, oh, God, oh, God. She was like screaming in the back. I'm like, this ain't that kind of church. But that's how she worships, you know. <laughs> and I wanted to be judgmental. I wanted to be judgmental. But I asked my one friend, I said, what? so what's that about? Was this woman screaming in the back? And she said, oh, she has had, had fought ma- multiple battles with cancer. And she just started to worship like that in that journey. Why? Because because at some point you just need God so bad, you don't care about respectability anymore. You don't care what people think about you in church. And friends, that's why we started to worship differently. Because we were so desperate for God to break in. And if it wasn't, I started shouting in worship in my own pain. I I like to shout in worship, but it came out of my own pain. That's like when I began to shout. But if it wasn't like our own pain, then it was like the pain of our community. It was the pain of our friends. Friends, this morning, someone lost their life here on Franklin Avenue. Our community is grieving. Um, I don't know if you saw the police cars. Um, Young guy. I, I didn't know him. We've known, but Chelsea and I have known like 15 young guys at this point. We've lost. I mean, guys, that will change your worship. Either you'll drown in despair or you will shout 
until you can hang on to God and know that he's hanging on to you. It changes the way you worship. That's why the temperature of our worship rose up. It was because of weakness. What I'm saying is every time we have chosen as a family to go there, to the place that feels uncomfortable, like Jesus did, to not go through life just trying to avoid weakness, but to actually go there, like Jesus, I'm going to Jerusalem. And then we expect that God will work through that. We expect that God will move in that. Then we see God birth life out of these things that we couldn't have expected. Now, all of that sounds so, like, on one hand, hopeful, but on the other hand, choosing weakness sounds so scary and so terrible. And and to me, even after all these years, it can still feel that way. So here's, like, where where I want to end, that he is also king for your weakness. He's king for the lame people. He's king for the blind people. He's king for these kids, guys. For our weakness, he is a trustworthy king in all of these places. Now, I want to be clear what I'm saying here. The temptation in weakness is always to sin in the place of our weakness. And we sin in different ways. Either there's kind of like the sins of despair. We just become self-destructive to ourselves and other people. Or there's kind of the sins of like grass, like Israel did. They're always grasping for another empire, Egypt or Assyria, to try to like become prideful and kind of like get a shield around us so that we won't have to like appear or feel weak. Both of those places lead us to sin. And, when, and listen, God has no use for our sin. God always wants to, to eliminate that, right? But what I am saying is whatever feels weak, He wants to do something besides sin out of that. Oh, and the enemy knows it. So like the enemy fights for these weak places because if he can attach his narrative to these weak places, then he will lead us to sin in these weak places. And he knows better than we know that these are the very places that God wants to break through in the world. How do I know that? Because a man named Jesus died on a cross on Calvary. It was the very place The weakest place of all is where heaven was breaking through, where our redemption was being secured, where healing for our bodies was flowing into the world. It was in that place, right? It was in that place. Jesus wants to do something with what's weak in us. Jake, if you could come play. I've shared this before, but I'm gonna share it again. I'm realizing more and more this whole weakness thing has really been like the theme of everything for us and for my ministry. And I don't choose weakness enough, but I do know it's the unifying theme of what a lot of what we've experienced did not come by us choosing strength. It came by us choosing weakness. Um, I've shared this with some of you, but I've had some really emotionally dark days. This is super vulnerable. But I'll share it though, because who cares? Um, <laughs> One, one night, this is years ago, we were living in these houses, and for a number of reasons, there's terrible things happening in my family of origin. And I probably like, didn't even have language for it, but I just kind of lost it emotionally. And it, uh, Oh, and there was stress. Franklin Avenue had flooded. We had lost a bunch of our furniture. It was just a bad night. And at some point, I just kind of lost it and started like like walking down Franklin Avenue in the middle of the night and I'm like crying and yelling. I was just such a wreck. 
Anyway, there was a guy who I went to college with who was um, uh, hanging out with me. You, you know why I've been thinking about this? Because he's back in the area. I haven't seen him for years. <laughs> and I ran into him and I was like, oh man, we maybe should revisit that night. Yours <laughs> got so embarrassing. Um, and I was going down here. I was so worked up emotionally, I got down here to the library. I vomited in front of the library. Not my best moment. But honestly, I've had, and he was like just trying to figure out how to help me, but I, it was such a mess. I'll revisit it with him. We'll work through it. But... Um, but honestly, I've had a lot of days like that, guys. I really have. And it's just because there's parts of my story that are just so bad, so bad. Um, and at, at its worst, uh, I've wanted to give up on ministry. Actually, it's worse I've wanted to kill myself. I've been there. Like, that was a thing for me. On my bad days, if the enemy's really nipping at me, uh, not the suicidal stuff, I haven't felt that in years and years and years, but... Um, but on my really bad days, those self-loathing thoughts will come back. And I'll, I'll hear them chirping, right? But there were years where I lived in that. And there were real places it came from. Wounds and stuff that had been done to me and all that. I wouldn't have even had language for it. That was a big part of my life. Ninth grade, I was going to the bathroom, locking myself in the stall and just crying, 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 wishing I was dead. So like, I've been to some of those places, you know, before. And... In those places of weakness, one thing that would often like surface, for, re- for and some of you know parts of my story, I'm not going to get into all of it, but men dominating me. It's just a wound uh, for a bunch of reasons, right? And what that did for me as a man in like being formed that way was... Um, it could always make me feel weak. As a matter of fact, a thing I was often called growing up by my father was weakling. Like that was just said to me over and over and over again. You're weakling. You're weakling. You're weakling. You start to believe that, you know, in time. And you become, and then like, I don't know, like I always made friends with like people who would dominate me, like beat me up or, you know what I mean? Just dumb stuff. But that stuff like affects you. And, it caused me to like hit adult think, adulthood, like thinking as a man. It's like, man, I don't feel like very strong. Like, I don't know if I'd get elected in this country. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know if, um, like, I don't know if uh, I'm intimidating to anybody. Like, I don't think I am. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't present that way. And it, guys, it took me a long time to realize this. I know I've said this before, but that place of weakness, which when the enemy is working in it, self-loathing is sin. When the enemy is working in it, he's been able to produce all kinds of sin out of my life over the years, like stuff that I've had to be freed from. But when God is working it, I used to think that what God would just do was eliminate my weakness. He does something, he's a better king than that. It's crazy. I have had an inordinate amount of ministry around like pretty tough guys. Um, I've been out here on the streets. I've, been, I've had a lot of ministry around the kinds of people that I used to fear. Why? Well, it's because I'm not intimidating to people. Do you know how many guys have started like crying to me over the years? I think it's because I'm not intimidating. 
I think it's because they know I can't beat them up, probably. (laughs) And somehow, like, the guard comes down. You know what I mean? And this curse that was spoken over my life, weakling, 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 as it turns out, it's exactly the thing that God says, I'll use that. I'll use that to open up all kinds of ministry. I'll use that to reach people that other people... You know, there are people that couldn't have been reached. You know? Like, and, and Jared says this to me all the time. It's like, there's people, like maybe there's people who couldn't have been reached by anyone else. But, but here's why. It's not because I was like so strong, right? If they were reached by anything, they're reached by my weakness, Right? Like, that's where God did something. Like, that's what God worked in. I'm preaching good news to your weakness because you have weakness too. And on Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, we remember that this is our king. He is king for what is weak in you. He's king for it. He'll be king through it. He'll be king in it. And if if the goal is just to be around him, then why spend our lives trying to avoid what feels weak? Why not just go to him? There he is. And, and friends, I, I don't want to end life like talking about what I was able to do in my own strength or like my talent or whatever. You know, before I really started to embrace weakness, I leaned into the places where I knew people would compliment me. And some of you know what this feels like. Compliments only take you so far because you know that people aren't loving you They just love the thing that you do. So that gets complimented over and over and over again. But when a king comes to you and says, oh, I know all about your weakness and I love you, right? More than that, I treasure this. I want to use it. I want to write a story out of it. Then the story by the end of our lives literally becomes miracles. I want to live a life of miracles. (laughs) I want to live a life of miracles. I feel God's anointing on that. I want to live a life of miracles. Can you stand to your feet? Who's closing today? <laughs> can I just pre- oh, you're gonna close, but can you just extend extend your hands? Let's just extend our hands to the Lord. God declare a life of miracles over this room. We declare healing. We declare financial miracles. We declare transformed communities transform cities. We declare justice in systems where principalities and powers have tried to oppress the vulnerable and the poor and the weak. We declare a life of miracles. And we break the thought that those who walk in the supernatural do so because of their own strength. Friend, it's the opposite. They walk in the supernatural because they're so weak. They walk in the supernatural because they don't have what it takes. They walk in the supernatural because there's room in their lives. So God, we pray for this. An increase of miracles in Jesus' name. An increase of miracles in Jesus' name. Holy week, what a painful week for Jesus. But today we remember the miracles. We remember that lame people walked during Holy Week. That blind people regained their sight during Holy Week. We remember that you made room for children during Holy Week. And we remember that Holy Week leads to a dead man coming out of a grave. 
we remember that even at your crucifixion, Jesus, dead people were coming out of their grave. As you embrace weakness, dead people were coming out of their grave. We declare miracles in Jesus' name. Miracles in Jesus' name. And we do say, Lord, so today, on Palm Sunday, we say, Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna, save us. God, we cry out because we need you. We cry out because we have nothing without you. We cry out because if you don't show up, we don't have anything to give our families. We don't have anything to give our community. We say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. We cry out to you, Jesus. Hosanna. Hosanna. I know it's vulnerable, but from the place of your weakness, begin to cry out to him now. Just begin to cry out to him. From those places of weakness, the stories that have not tied up, the personality defects, the places where you don't feel strong, cry out to him. Cry out to him. Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna in the highest. The son of David. Cry out to you, God. We cry out to you, God. We cry out to you, God. We cry out to you, God. These are the birth pains of miracles. These are the birth pains of miracles. He's birthing miracles. He's birthing miracles. Declare it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. It's God, we cry out to you.